Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. going to bring in Jim Glassman now, J.P. Morgan Chase, commercial banking head economist. Tradition to catch up with you, Jim, ahead of the payrolls report. So your base case, please, for the numbers that drop in 11 minutes' time. Bouncing back from the slim pickings in February, unemployment steady. And you know what? Actually, I think we're sort of in the middle of a transition here. Most people who want a job are already working. So we're going to be seeing hiring slowing down. Now, that's why I think the most useful information is going to be from the weekly jobless claims. That tells you something about layoffs and the trend in the unemployment rate. I think we're at cruising altitude, and I think we're going to see job growth slow down, but everything sort of holds up pretty well. I'm, I'm really intrigued by the trend in jobless claims because we've had a lot of noise this winter. But layoffs did pick up a little bit early this year, and now they're right back down to extremely low levels in every single state. So, Jim, the story you tell... The story you tell makes a lot of sense, made a lot of sense last year, the year before as well. Why is it different this time? Why will payrolls finally start to decelerate a little bit? Well, I'll tell you what, you know, when we look at the numbers for the last couple of years, what you know is that there still are these pockets of hidden unemployment. But what was really intriguing last month, even though we were all sort of taken aback by the payroll numbers, the household survey is telling you that the number of people who are having to work part time involuntarily has backed down to normal. And the number of young adults who sort of dropped out, the participation of folks is getting is really moving back to where we were in 2007. So this idea, I think what we it's hard to know uh, how long it's going to take to, to pull out people who was in these hidden pockets of unemployment. But I think now you could say we're much closer to where we need to be than we've been in the last couple of years. So I don't know when this is going to happen, but I would I would be shocked. Uh, if we don't see payrolls slowing down, at least by summer. So, Jim, there seems to be a de-emphasis this time around on the wage growth with the idea that the Fed will be more tolerant of wages accelerating uh, without having to raise rates. Do you think that that's true? Yeah, I think it's a bigger story than that, actually. I mean, I think I think they're learning that just because wages are doing better doesn't mean that translates into inflation. Uh, businesses are very profitable. So there's no real pressure on businesses to be ramping up prices. And in fact, the inflation news has been very tame. I think what's making the Fed more patient is they believe that inflation is very cyclical. They know that it tends to go on the high side when the economy is strong and then fall off in recession. I think they're trying to take a longer view about inflation and try to target the average level of inflation rather than at any moment in time. So I think that's a, that's a new idea. To, to me, that's a really innovative idea that we'll hear more about this summer in their conference. And I think it just makes them more patient. That must be one of the reasons why they're willing to sort of sit back and watch how things play out. That said, for corporate profits, certainly higher wages means lower margins, and that could potentially weigh on equity valuations. Do you expect us to start to see a greater degree of wage inflation in this report and going forward? You know, we're already seeing a pickup. I think it's just returned to normal, 3.5%, 3.5% wage growth in my book, is normal if inflation is running 2%. Um, I don't think, there's no sign yet that this is putting pressure on wages. And I think we're living in a different uh, era, frankly. I don't think businesses are going to be forced to raise wages to the point where they become less competitive. I think they're constrained also by the competitive 
markets they're living in. So I think it's going to work a little differently than what we all grew up with, that, that it's not wages aren't going to be driving inflation. It's going to be more the strength of global demand and technology and things like that that are going on that are constraining inflation. We still haven't really got our hands around why inflation has become so muted when the economy is doing so well. Hey, Jim, it's really hard to reconcile, really hard to reconcile the conversation we're having right now about the strength of the labor market with some of the forecasts for a recession. And some of those recession calls are quite near term as well. Reconcile those two things for me if you can, Jim. Can you at all? Uh, Yeah, no, I I don't think you can reconcile them. I think I think what you're hearing um, when you have when you listen to people talk about recession, they can't tell you. What's going on right now that might be a re- makes them think this? What they're really referring to is that if you look at our history books, what people have noticed is that when we get back to full employment, we just never stay there more than a year or two. To me, that's the sole reason why th- this conversation is coming up. And frankly, I mean, you've got to respect history, but frankly, I, I don't think there's anything that any of us economists see on the inflation side or on the financial imbalances that should make us be talking about recession. It's really just based on this history that somehow, for some reason, we just never seem to stay at full employment. I think that's a pretty weak argument myself. And I look around the economy, I think we're all struggling to understand tame inflation and the financial system seems very balanced. The banking system is very strong. Um, I don't think there's anything that you can really point to that tells you this is really kind of unprecedented. This has the potential to cause a recession. So I think we're, I think people are slowly beginning to ignore this conversation. Hey, Jim, it's great to have you with us. Jim Glassman, J.P. Morgan Chase, commercial banking head economist. We can catch up with Mike Darda now, MKM Partners, Chief Economist and Macro Strategist. You've had a couple of minutes, Mike, to have a look at the data. Your first read, please. Yes, absolutely, John. So, you know, it's a decent number, uh, but as Jim said, a bounce back from the prior month, which was a big disappointment. What I like to do here is to take a three-month moving average because, as you know, the standard deviation in these monthly figures is too big to draw sweeping conclusions from. And if we do that, we still see about 180,000. So that's good. You know, that does suggest some cooling, but that's what the Fed intended, right? They didn't raise rates and reduce the balance sheet for most of the last two years to boost the economy. They're trying to restrain it. If they have the restraint they want, then, you know, no more Fed rate hikes and and we can debate, you know, potential easing. But, you know, I think this is this is right in line with the an economy moving to trend. So, Mike, every analyst that we spoke to ahead of this number said that it's all about the participation rate. It's all about the headline jobless number. I would argue that the market reaction shows that's not the case, that actually still it's about the wage growth, which was disappointing. The headline number beat the, the actual wage growth disappointed and you got a bid for bonds. What do you right. make of that? <clears throat> right. So, yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, the wage growth number coming in a little cool with a with a pretty strong headline figure tells you, I mean, that's about as good as it gets for the market, right? Because job growth is strong, so we're still going to have income generation. Yet, you know, you don't have this light flashing red on the inflationary pressure, right? If the wages are still modest or, you know, still in line with the underlying productivity growth rate in the Fed's inflation target, then it doesn't look like there's any really any evidence of overheating. And so this is what the market wants, solid job growth, but, you know, no evidence of an inflationary problem. So this is a Goldilocks report, no? 
It's a Goldilocks report, 100%. Do we have any sense of the participation rate and who is coming back into the market at this point? Because uh, we were speaking earlier with Jim Glassman, and he was saying most of the people who wanted a job and who are employable already are employed. Uh, So this is on the periphery. This is sort of uh, raises some questions about who's left and what it's taking to bring them back in. What's your sense? Right. Well, What's interesting to me is that the prime age participation rate, people 25 to 54, has been moving up. So if we just look at the overall level of unemployment, it's essentially been flat for a year, really right around, you know, we were right at these levels, 3.8% last uh, May. And so job growth is stronger than what you'd get from working age population growth, and that's been fulfilled by a rising prime age Uh, participation rate, which is really good news. And and these are folks that were not counted because they had not been in the, you know, counted as in the labor force. So, and the feeling has been that either through disability or opioid addiction, um, you know, that they weren't going to be able to come back, but they're coming back. And that's, that's a good story. One big question that I've bandied around with a number of people is, how does this uh, jobs number account for people working multiple jobs? Well, you know, there are some statistics on that. Um, you know, I think I, I, I did a write-up a while ago. I, I can send you guys. But, you know, there's been this focus on the so-called gig economy. Yeah, that's where I was going with work, this. But, yeah, it's not – it's interesting because it's something that, you know, we see every day when we use Uber and, and so on and so forth, but it's not really in the statistics. You know, at least people – Working part-time for economic reasons, that number has been essentially plunging ever since the labor market recovery started. So it could be one of those situations where what seems obvious, you know, maybe within the context of a you know, quite large labor market really just isn't as significant as it seems. So I want to go back to wages for a second and sort of what it says that we're not seeing inflation accelerate, even to the degree that many people were expecting, which still wasn't that much. Phillips curve, dead? Is that basically the big takeaway again and again that we're beaten over the head with every single jobs report since the financial crisis? Yeah, it's really for the Fed, you know, that's sort of their base model of in- inflation. And it's certainly been a moving target, right? They seem to just adjust their, you know, their estimate for the sustainable unemployment rate down just based on what's been happening with, you know, very little inflation pressure. So it, it's a it's a problematic model, Um you know, and we also have this issue. We just were talking about prime age participation moving up. And so, you know, if you're looking at, at just too narrow of a measure of labor market slack, then you can, you know, you can also come to the wrong conclusion about spare capacity, even within the context of the, the Phillips curve model. So, for example, the prime age employment to population ratio is just finally, just finally getting back to the, the you know, the two decade pre-crisis median level, but we're still, you know, unless I'm, you know, I haven't been able to appraise all the numbers so far today, but, you know, at least recently we were not back to the high seen um, during the last cycle or certainly the cycle before it. So if there's a bit more slack out there than what most people believe just looking at the unemployment rate, then that could be one reason that the so-called Phillips curve isn't, isn't working. Another reason is that it just might not be a very good model of the inflation process. So, so yeah, we don't have we don't have much inflationary pressure to to write home about. It's one of the reasons the Fed paused. Right, the last Fed press conference, Paul Powell was talking about this 
idea that you don't want a situation where inflation expectations permanently ratchet lower. And so there's just this ongoing expectation that the Fed you know, continues to undershoot or fail on its inflation goal. Yeah, I uh, just want to take a look at markets. The uh, Dow in particular is extending gains following this report. Green across the screen on the equity side. Uh, on the bond side, also a bit of a bid. Just real quick, uh, Mike Darda of MKM Partners. Is bad news good news or is tepid news good news again? You know, I, I think it's a situation where you know, the Goldilocks scenario is good news, right? I mean, I don't think risk markets are going to like the idea of a potential recession and a business cycle. We saw that obviously play out late last year. At the same time, you know, if the data is so strong that it's going to be pushing the Fed into continual tightening and then we have to worry about the Fed overdoing it, that may not be so good for risk markets either. This is about perfect, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, yield, the yield curve is sort of disinverted on its own and the Fed's just sitting there watching the data and you know the data is in line with a you know modest growth economy with not yeah. a lot of inflationary pressure it's about yeah. as good as it gets for equity markets about as good as it gets michael darda chief economist and market strategist and partner at mkm partners For the Trump administration's views on a jobs report now, I'm very pleased to say we're joined on Bloomberg TV and on radio by Larry Kudlow, National Economic Council Director. Larry, always great to catch up with you, buddy. Let's just talk about the payrolls report to begin with. It looks solid. It looks like a bounce back. Your first read. Yeah, it's a good number. It's a very good number. 196 plus when you put the revisions in, you get up to 211. I like that number a lot. I think the uh, wages are still well above 3%. Hours worked are rising. And, you know, even away from that, I just want to note, it's, it's been a tough, you know, between government shutdowns and lousy uh, winter seasonal adjustments. But it looks like the economy is really coming back now and will be better than 2 percent in Q1. At least that's our hope. And then I think uh, you'll get back towards 3 percent for the rest of the year. What's interesting here, last point on these numbers, this is very similar to what happened last year. You had a weak first quarter. We've had weak first quarters, I don't know, bad seasonals for years. But then the economy snapped back. We got 3% growth. It's a repeat, and I like it very much. And I think President Trump's rebuilding of the economy from the supply side with tax cuts and deregulation and trade reform, I think we're still very much in place. Labor market looks solid. Larry, that's your view. You expect to see 3% GDP growth. Some people do share that very optimistic view. This is what I struggle with. How do you reconcile that very, very constructive assessment of the U.S. economy with calls for the Fed to cut rates, Larry? How do those two things work? Well, I think the issue on that is a precautionary issue. couple points here quickly. Number one, we are facing a worldwide slowdown. You know, recession, arguably, I, I don't want to make that call, but Europe is not doing well. Germany itself may be in recession. That troubles us. Okay, that's point number one. Point number two, there is no inflation. There is no inflation. I mean, we're talking about maybe one and a half percent max and productivity rising at 1.8 percent last year. So wages are rising at whatever 3.2 percent that's being covered by productivity without inflation. Why raise interest rates? And look, we just don't want any threats to this rebuilding, reviving, growing economy. And um, looking at the yield curve and other uh, market-based measures, uh, I think 
on their time, the Fed is independent. I want to emphasize that. The Fed is independent. But the president has said, and I concur, that um, I think that we could do at some point with some reductions in the Fed's target rate. Larry, the Federal Reserve is operationally independent. That's a matter of fact. You're allowed by a matter of process to nominate who you like to the Federal Reserve. Your administration will do it. Previous administrations have done it as well. No issue with that whatsoever. But when you call for rate cuts, can you see how that puts the Federal Reserve between a rock and a hard place? Well, I don't know. You know, <laughs> it's a free country. president has a lot of well-informed opinions as a successful businessman and investor. Uh, I've been covering this beat for a long time. We're not pressuring. We're not going after their independence. We have our point of view. I think a lot of people—by the way, the markets have a point of view. The markets, as you probably know better than I do, have actually been starting to price in a federal funds uh, rate reduction. So that's all it is. We're all entitled to our opinions nowadays. It's a great country. But, Larry, where your opinion becomes original— and it is original. It's because the rate market is predicting and forecasting pricing a rate cut because it's simultaneously forecasting a rapid deceleration in U.S. growth. Most of the people that I find that agree with you that the Federal Reserve is going to cut twice in the next year, they're also forecasting much, much lower GDP growth than your 3 percent. That's where it becomes original. And I think the optics really, really matter here. When I ask guests from the street whether they think the perception, not your intent, the perception, the optics of Federal Reserve independence, whether that is being compromised, the answer I keep getting is yes, Larry. We're treading a fine line here. Well, look, I respect people may disagree with this, but let me make this point. Let's go to a broader measure, not real GDP, but nominal GDP, which is related to monetary policy. So nominal GDP is real output plus inflation. I think overall nominal will slow. But the slowing is not going to be in real. It's not going to be output. It's not going to be business investment or jobs. The slowing in that measure is from lower inflation. And I think that's a big surprise. And I think that's something everybody has to consider. So I, as I look at the yield curve and I look at other measures of the dollar and gold and commodity indexes, what I'm seeing, you know, take the tip spreads, uh, I'm seeing a reduction in the expected rate of inflation, and I'm seeing a reduction in the actual rate of inflation. It, it's disinflation, if you will. And therefore, I think in that sense, we have room to lower the Fed target rate at their, you know, on their speed, on their dime. I'm not uh, pressuring and going up against the independents. I just think, you know, let's go back. I'm not exactly going to break news here, but a long-held Kudlow view, more people working and prospering is not inflationary. And in this particular business cycle, which we have started as the president rebuilds the economy, this is supply-side expansion. These are lower tax rates and regulations, right? Better after-tax returns for investment and hence productivity yeah. and hence labor force growth. So you see what I'm saying? We're pushing the supply curve out. That actually lowers inflation, and I think the authorities have to keep that in mind as they go about their uh, business to uh, set interest rates and the balance sheet. I want to raise that point. Uh, be great, I think, to freeze the balance sheet and uh, stop the reduction of the balance sheet. What's the appropriate size of the balance sheet, Larry? 
Oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, that's a very difficult question. I, I don't know. What I suspect, though, is we don't want measures that will restrain the economy or financial market conditions, okay? We don't want that. So I would tread very cautiously. And I think in this new environment, yeah. with a supply-side growth uh, takeoff and a rebuilding of the economy, I, I think some people have to rethink some of their assumptions. And by the way, by the way, I'm not sure the Fed really has much of a disagreement with the sorts of things I'm talking about. I think we're reaching common ground here. Larry, I agree with you. I mean, I've got Rick Reader of BlackRock next to me who also thinks that wage growth won't lead to consumer price pressures. I don't think what you're saying is outlandish, but I think your assessment of Federal Reserve policy is a little bit difficult. The Fed funds rate on a real basis is barely positive. Most people would conclude that this isn't tight monetary policy at the moment, and people are trying to figure out the message that you're trying to send to the FOMC if you nominate people like Stephen Moore and Herman Cain. What is the message you're sending to the Fed if you follow through on those nominations? Well, look, these are very capable people, and I think what you have here is a philosophy that strong growth is not inflationary, especially when it comes from the supply side of the economy, which is where it's coming from. You know, as you look at the jobs and the hours worked and the business investment. So these are people that would like a steady dollar, and they don't believe that growth causes inflation. And therefore, they will reflect those views to balance, perhaps, some of the other views on the Federal Reserve Board. Again, I want to indicate that I don't think the Fed right now, today, is very far away from these points of view. Yeah. I mean, I've watched the chairman speak. I've watched the vice chairman, Richard Clarida, speak. Uh, I'm not sure we have a big disagreement here, maybe one of timing. I, I don't know. I don't want to get into that because the Fed is independent. But for heaven's sakes, strong growth is not inflationary. More people working can't be inflationary. And that's a point of view that I've held for three or four decades, as you probably know, and watch the market indicators. And I think that's what um, those two uh, candidates, they haven't been vetted yet, yeah. but those two candidates believe that. And I think that's a good balance to the Fed. So, Larry, you and I can have a back and forth on this in the future. I know you want a little bit of time to talk about the trade story, and I want to provide that for you. It's felt like the end game for a while now. We we had this March 1st self-imposed deadline. It's come and gone. Just exactly what have the Chinese done to secure the extra time from the United States? What are the concessions that you've secured? You know, uh, point of fact, we, we never had a deadline. Just want to make that point. We never had a deadline. What we need, and this came out yesterday in the Oval Office, and it's been well reported, uh, we need a great trade deal for the United States, one which hopefully works for China. We need a great trade deal, and then when we get that deal, and we've come a long way, uh, as the president characterized yesterday, the talks this week, which are still going on, they're still talking this morning, by the way, these are productive talks, these are talks that are, you know, moving the ball in the right direction, we're making hay on this. Uh, president also indicated correctly that we have been satisfied on a number of issues. We've come further than we thought we would get 
and um, I salute my uh, Chinese uh, counterparts uh, as well for doing this. So we're moving towards it. We're not done yet. We have some issues to get through. It's not so much timing. It's making a good deal. That's the key point. Well, let's talk about the sticking points, the fate of the existing tariffs and the enforcement mechanism. You said we made progress. Have we made progress on those issues? And define how, Larry, if you can. Uh, <clears throat> I don't want to get into specifics. It's not my role right now, particularly because the negotiations are ongoing. But I will just say this is the broadest, deepest discussions in U.S.-Chinese trade relations history. Uh, somebody said in the meeting yesterday, is, it's a 40-year history. We've never come this far. We've never done that much. We've never had these conversations before. That is a very good thing. Now, we are making headway in a lot of areas. And, you know, that includes enforcement, that includes uh, IP theft, that includes forced technology transfers, ownership, cyberspace, commodities, and all the rest of it. Uh, I'm not here to provide details. Uh, those are, of course, in the middle of the negotiations that are ongoing. But we've come further and farther than ever before. It's a point the president made. I think it's a very important point. Well, the talks are ongoing, Larry. Are they going through the weekend? Uh, I don't think so. I've not heard that. Just let me say I've not heard that. But in any case, I mean, I think Mr. Vice Premier Liu He uh, has to get back to Beijing. Uh, you can expect is the next step. After today's talks are completed, and, you know, it's quite possible we'll make even additional headway today, uh, is regarding next week, the principals, the top level on both teams will be in touch through teleconferencing, and the professional staff will be hard at it. There's no let-up here. This is an ongoing process. So, Larry, just as a final question, there will be some people confused watching this because they thought there was a March 1st deadline that was somewhat self-imposed, then was what pushed aside. Looking forward, set ex expectations for me. When is it realistic that these talks conclude that the two leaders, President Trump, President Xi, sit around a table together and sign the deal? I, <laughs> I, I've tried to tell your folks and everybody else, we, we never had a, a deadline. We, <laughs> we, 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 you can't cancel a meeting that wasn't scheduled. But look, um, the prospects for a deal are good. And the president said that yesterday. Vice Premier Liu He said the same thing. That's terribly, terribly important. The trick here is to get a good U.S.-China trade deal that covers the key areas and that is enforceable. That is the trick. Once we get, if we get, I should say, if we get a good president characterizes as a great trade deal, then the two leaders will hold some kind of summit and sign it. But um, the key point is the substance, and we're working on the substance, and we're getting closer, we're making headway, it's very productive. I don't know how many ways to say that. It's never been timetable-driven. And we wish you the best of luck, Larry. We all do. Thank you. Thank you Appreciate very much, Larry. Great to catch up with you. Joining us now to talk a little bit about the jobs numbers as well as what we just heard from the White House's chief economic counsel is Tiffany Wilding of PIMCO. Uh, Tiffany Wilding, chief U.S. economist, uh, what was your take, uh, if you were listening in on the Kudlow interview, uh, from what he said? Was there anything that really stood out to you? 
Yeah, well, thanks for having me. You know, so I think that I think the policy debate right now is um, with respect to monetary policy as well as fiscal is really the extent to which, you know, running the economy a little bit hot can engender some of the sort of supply side repair and improvement um, after we saw, you know, inc- you know, incredible damage after the 2008 financial crisis. You know, and I think if you kind of look at the economy and, and kind of survey the different areas where we've seen the most uh, su- sort of supply improvement from from running things a little bit hot is on the labor market side. Um, so we've seen continued improvements in participation rates, in particular for prime age people, prime age women. Participation rates have increased, you know, quite notably. And I think there's been even, you know, an encouraging, you know, uplift in, in prime age male participation. And that's after some what looked to be secular declines. You know, so I think that that, you know, that's that's obviously very encouraging for the, you know, the longer run growth prospects. But if you look at, you know, the other sectors of the economy, productivity and productive capacity, I think maybe there's a little bit of less evidence. You know, now it's kind of the, I think, early stages and we need to continue to watch this. It will happen over time. Um, but one thing to watch, I think, is um, is, is the IT uh, in tech-related investment, R&D. In the past, that's tended to lead gains in, in productivity, sort of increases in trend productivity. So that's something that certainly we'll be watching. And then the one last point that I would just want to make is, you know, the Fed, uh, you know, I think in, I agree that inflation pressures are, are, um, are modest, um, and that allows the Fed to be patient and sort of potentially allow these um, improvements to run. You know, but you also, the Fed also has to weigh this against financial stability risks. Um, and, you know, while we would also say that financial stability risks are low, you know, this is something that, you know, we also have to monitor in the context of lower rates and and easier financial conditions. So, Tiffany, the Fed appears to be quite comfortable sitting on the sidelines. And I think what we just heard from Larry Kudlow speaking with John Farrow is that the uh, the administration is comfortable with the Fed on the sidelines, if not maybe even cutting rates. Um, Was there anything in the jobs report today that is likely to change that outlook, in your opinion? Um, no, I, I, I didn't think so. I mean, I thought the, the report overall was, was, you know, relatively in line with kind of our expectations, at least the underlying details, in the sense that, you know, we are looking for some deceleration in growth um, over the next year. Our, you know, our forecast is, is 2% in the end of 2019, so that's a deceleration. And that's really being led uh, to some extent by, by the good sector of the U.S. economy and manufacturing, which is, you know, has important links to the global economy, which is slowing. So there's some spillover effects that will have an impact there. And similarly, we're seeing some slowing uh, in the jobs in the jobs data on the manufacturing and goods side. Um, you know, so that, that sort of slowing was in line with our expectations. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, obviously we've seen, you know, wage, we've seen some wage acceleration, but it, it's largely following productivity gains. So we don't think that that passes through to a large extent to really accelerate consumer price inflation. You know, so this idea that the Fed can remain on hold for a prolonged period of time, you know, I don't, I don't think really changed given today's report. One thing that I'm, I'm really struck by, and I feel like perhaps is the unspoken headline of this whole thing, is that this report comes out better than expected headline number. Sure, wage growth is tepid. The chance being priced into the market of a rate cut starting at the beginning of next year by the Federal Reserve has increased since this report, even though people are saying that it indicates uh, a pretty good strength in the U.S. labor market. Economists are saying that bond traders are too pessimistic, but bond traders have gotten it right and economists have gotten it wrong uh, more frequently. So what is it that analysts are seeing right now that gives them confidence that we're not going to see a downturn and that it's premature to price in a Fed rate cut? 
Um, well, so I, I think that what's in terms of uh, premature to price a, a rate cut, um, you know, I think I think one of the things is that traditionally when we see rate cuts, it's, it's usually because you see a, a, a more pronounced downturn in the U.S. economy. You know, and although we think growth will decelerate next year, you know, we we don't think that the probability of recession, at least over the next year or so, um, you know, is is materially high enough to build it into our kind of baseline case outlook. Of course, it's always a risk. Um, but but so I, I think that. You know, and the reason why we don't think that recession is is you know appropriate for the base case outlook is because you still have, as others have said, the um, the household uh, sector is is still pretty strong. You never really saw the leveraging up in the household sector after the financial crisis, you know, which can cause those deleveraging effects to really weigh on growth and push the economy into a recession. You know, on the other on the other side of that as well, the banking sector is is much more more robust. So if we do get you know some additional slowing in global growth, that does spill over into the U. U.S. market, we think that would be relatively contained because the banks just aren't going to be the, the type of contagion agent um, uh, that, that they were, uh, you know, in the last financial crisis. So those things make us pretty, you know, still make us pretty confident uh, on the growth outlook for the U.S. So just following up on that a little bit, Tiffany, how concerned are you that the weak growth coming out of the European Union and a slowing Chinese economy, albeit still growing, you know, mid-single digits, uh, admittedly, how much... Are you concerned that could weigh on the U.S. economy, maybe in the back half of this year into next year? Yeah, I mean, I, so we think that's ultimately going to be a headwind for for the U.S. economy. I think it's starting to be. So, you know, in in export growth to the to China uh, and and to to Europe, we started to see that uh, de decelerate. In addition, there tends to be. Um, you know, a relationship between ups and downs in U.S. investment activity with the, the sort of ups and downs in, in Chinese growth. Um, and that relationship, you know, that kind of happens with the lag. So you see those spillover effects of, of deceleration in, in China in particular. Um, you, you see that, uh, I think, starting to happen now with some deceleration in equipment investment, heavy equipment investment and things like that in the U.S. And I think that continues uh, throughout the better part of this year. You know, and I think the question is we've seen more recent stabilization or policy policies from, from the Chinese government to stabilize their own economy, fiscal, as well as some credit easing policies. Um, you know, and I, I think the question of, you know, does that take hold kind of in the latter part of that e this year, you know, and does that sort of help support the, the global economy? You know, no, we don't, we don't think that you get another synchronized recovery like you do in 2017, but, you know, by the end of this year, you know, those sort of headwinds uh, we, we think will fade. Tiffany Wilding, thank you so much for spending the time with us on this Jobs Day Friday. Tiffany Wilding is U.S. economist for PIMCO, uh, joining us from California. And it's really interesting to me to see uh, just how much of this report is being digested as Goldilocks, as many people have said. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.